Welcome to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, episode 58. Today on the show, I have Dave Karen, USA Track and Field Chair for Men's and Women's High Jump. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 58 of the podcast. Thanks for being here with us today. I'm your host, Joel Smith. And today on the show, we have a great guest for you in the world of jumping, jump training, and track and field. And that is Dave Karen. Uh, Dave is the USATF. Uh, development chair. He is the USATF men's and women's high jump chair. He is well known for a really great article he wrote on plyometric training, specific plyometric training needs, uh, or specific training needs for jumping back in 2001. I remember reading it when I was in college and just being so stoked about it. I think I uh, I was showing it um, to pretty much all my training people and my coaches and 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 uh, back in about 10 years later, uh, Dave uh, was a contributor for Just Fly Sports as well on uh, an article we had on squat depth for athletes. And uh, in the world of high jump, that uh, ass to grass, uh, <laughs> Olympic depth is not always the best thing for the highest level of performance uh, through special physical prep. So uh, Dave was a great contributor there. He's been um, a mentor of mine in terms of just my own knowledge of the technical side of the event, as well as just bouncing off some general training ideas. He's a guy with great knowledge, great experience. He's spent many years coaching the event. Uh, now he analyzes and assesses some of the best and highest jumpers in the world, uh, women that are jumping 6'8 and higher, and men that are jumping seven eight seven nine seven ten and better and uh, it can tell you anything about that but today we're going to go uh very heavily into plyometrics and stuff jump stuff <laughs> jump stuff jump training concepts that have universal uh applicability so if you're not a track coach you're still going to get a lot out of this episode from just a general uh, uh plyometric implications the forces of jumping the mechanics what part of your foot should plant on the ground um you know, what what are some ways to assess the plyometric and, and neural wiring ability of your athletes and a lot more on those um, along those lines. So not only for track and field coaches, also great for strength coaches. Uh, Dave has, uh, he also has some great training accomplishments to his name. Uh, he has the still standing uh, NCAA Division Three Women's Championship record 
all holders. So the the young lady who jumped the highest ever at the NCAA Division Three track meet in high jump. And so he's uh, I'm just so excited to have him on the podcast. Some of the things we're going to talk about today are individualizing plyometrics and, and speed force paradigms to athletes. We're going to talk about hypertrophy and jumping. We're going to talk about the how you plant for single leg takeoffs, op- optimal planting. Uh, and then as well as how that plays out in plyometrics, flat foot and full foot contacts and plyometrics. That's always kind of a, a thing. You see a lot of different things. And so we're going to go into that a little bit. Dave's going to lay down some great knowledge there. And finally, we're going to finish with a little bit for the, the track nerds out there, a little bit of more high jump specific stuff towards the end of the show, uh, like flop and straddle, like the, the two contrasting styles, things like that. But overall, a uh, great show with universal applicability for a variety of coaches uh, who just who love jumping. So we hope you enjoy it. Episode 58 with Dave Karen. Hi, Dave. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Hey, thank you. Uh, could you lead it all off? Just uh, share a little bit of your background, uh, where, where you are now, and how did you get there throughout the years uh, in your experience as a, as a track coach? Well, um, I coached 14 years on the high school level. And in my mid thirties, after the 14th year, I actually retired from coaching. I thought I was done. And I got called by a D three school. This was, uh, in 94 and they had a, a kid come in from California who was a 15 foot vaulter and they had a, a, a female vaulter. And if you think back 94, female vault really hadn't even established yet. And so they had some safety concerns. They wanted to make sure somebody that knew the vault could, uh, could handle it. So they asked around and, and a couple of athletes I'd coached in high school were at the college and said, oh, you should give this guy a call. So I got called and came out of retirement and did 14 more years at that school. <laughs> so um, following, uh, I got done coaching. Uh, my mind fails me on this one, but I stopped coaching collegiately in 07 or 08, I think. 07, I want to say. Um, and around 2000, I became involved with USATF. Uh, at first, in looking for supporting information for some work I was doing. Um, and then the further I got into it, I kind of gravitated toward like minds. Uh, we had a young lady, Jen Davidson, was running the uh, biomechanics and the sports science out of Chula Vista's training center. And I got involved with her in filming of athletes and doing uh, performance analysis. And then Mike Young, who you know, and most of your listeners will recognize the name, Mike actually took over those performance center evaluations uh, that we did every year at the outdoor uh, USA Outdoor Championships. And so I did that for a number of years with Mike. Um, through that work and other work, I uh, was appointed chair of women's high jump. A couple of years later, they added men's high jump to women's high jump. And then back in 08, I became men's development chair, which put me in oversight of the other event chairs on the men's side. And I've been doing that now since 2008. That's fantastic. That sounds like an amazing opportunity and job. And, and I'm excited to have someone with your knowledge of the jumps on the episode today. I, uh, for as, as much jumping as, as people associate the website with jumping, I haven't had a ton of uh, jump people on the podcast so far. So I'm, I'm really excited to get your wealth of information there. And uh, so let's kind of start with more of the plyometric section and, and which obviously either applicable towards track and field jumpers or general uh, team and field sport athletes and strength and conditioning. We can take these kind of whatever direction uh, they end up going. Uh, but let's start out with just 
one of the staple questions I think a lot of people have and probably a lot of different opinions on it, but uh, drop height from boxes for plyometric work. So, cool. and you've, you've worked in high school, college, uh, and then have experience uh, with elite athletes as well. And uh, what's your thought on progressing? Uh, let's just say, let's just say jumpers, track jumpers, because that represents a good portion of the, the jumping population uh, throughout those, those levels of development. Sure. Um, well, let's let's set some parameters right off the bat and ties right into plyometrics. But um, I've come to the philosophy that I that I share regularly now that we need to clarify what constitutes a jump. And through study and through evaluation and so on and so forth and just a lot of thought put into it. Basically, in my world, a jump is something undertaken from a standing position. And typically it's a two footed effort where you drop, flex the knees and jump straight up in athletic performance. You know, you might get a volleyball player at the net or a NBA center putting up a rebound or something like that. But the preponderance of jumping in athletic pursuits is not what I would call a jump. I refer to it as a deflection off the ground. Um, so as a deflection off the ground, we're talking about force vectors. We're talking about horizontal velocity and we're trying to optimize those. And now if you think about plyometrics, the difference between how you land dropping from a box versus how you do any kinds of skips or bounds or, or, you know, a horizontal movement sort of effort are going to be somewhat different. But again, what it comes down to is a velocity, whether it's a drop velocity from the box, or if it's the horizontal velocity from running, moving forward, bounding forward, and what is the optimal vector you're looking to create? What is the elapsed time you want to spend on the ground? Because the dynamics of the rebound are going to be the conversion of energy and reorient it in another direction tied to the vector. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great way of putting it, a jump versus a deflection. It, it uh, even maybe takes me a little bit to, well, just working in the weight room and team sport athletes, uh, the weight room standard weight room list will help people's jump, but will it help their deflection? And then same thing with plyometrics or depth jumps for, for deflection versus jumping. And uh, I guess what are you really trying to get out of it would be the question. Well, it, it depends. Again, what, what is the athletic pursuit in a, a football situation or you know a baseball situation? Um, it's a dynamic sort of activity when you're running down a fly in the outfield or you're going over the middle and the pass is behind you and you've got to, got to try to find a way to get a hand on it versus in my sport track and field, it's a very closed frame activity where it's either a horizontal or a vertical jump. You come down the runway in long or triple, or you have to create the vertical and high jump, or you actually have to work with a pole in the case of the pole vault. So they're a little more structured jumps as opposed to free form. And so the training can be kind of targeting mechanical uh, advantages through biomechanics um, and looking at an athlete's morphology, for instance, a longer, shorter lever, uh, somebody that's more neurally gifted than somebody else, where um, you have to train in a, in a multidimensional 360 sort of sense in a unpredictable sort of sport jump. If you, if you follow my meaning, you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster. Sure. So if you had, uh, like, let's say a couple, uh, college jumpers and, and maybe they were at 
there's somewhat different levels. You know, you have a, or for high jump, you have a person or, you know, a lady who's going 5'8 and uh, another person who's going 5'2 and maybe have different profiles. Uh, are you doing depth, some sort of depth jump or from the box for those athletes? Are you uh, doing more of a hurdle hops remedial? Like, how are you, how are you kind of assessing and deciding what those athletes, what's going to be best for those athletes? Well, there's a lot of different things. I mean, training age comes into play. Uh, the uh, strength of the athlete. I mean, back in the day, I'm old enough. I have you by a couple of years. Used to be the old story that you had to be able to half squat twice your body weight before you should attempt plyometrics and things of that nature. And obviously, we've we've come a long way since those those uh, old days. If you think about it, and uh, Tom Telez is a good one for this. Tom wasn't a, according to what you know what he says in lectures and and, and in print. Tom wasn't a big believer in plyometrics because he felt his athletes, predominantly sprinters or sprinter jumpers, were getting the plyometric effect or the benefits simply by sprinting. So therefore, sprinting is a plyometric activity. And if you also think about it, the dynamics of the short duration of a ground contact, the speed and, you know, the speed of a Carl Lewis or a Leroy Burrell or, or somebody like that, um, you know, that's a very dynamic activity. So how much more traditional plyometric work do you need when you're getting that kind of speed work so a lot of it is assessing you know the strengths and weaknesses of the individual athlete and uh you know going from there um you know we can we can get further into that but uh one of the things i like to do if we're talking for instance the the hypothetical you just gave of a high school you know high school kid or an early collegiate athlete um the first thing i like to do is figure out whether their strength or neurally dominant and i have a, a very very simple you know steamer punk i think is the term they use nowadays old school is another term but uh, i like a very simple drill when i don't know the athlete i'm working with and it's as simple as this taking three shots or three med balls of different weights so let's say that in the female example you just gave athletes of that uh, ability with those prs you probably would do something with an eight pound baller shot, a six pound baller shot and a four pound baller shot. And I, I would take them out and have them overhead back. Obviously if they have an overhead back before there's a learning curve involved before we can get into any valuable, valuable data analysis. But it's as simple as this, assuming they know how to throw RHBs, you have them throw three throws with the heaviest implements. So they throw three times to the eight pound med ball or the eight pound shot. You measure all three, throw out the high and throw out the low. So you take the middle performance of the three efforts. Then you drop down to the six pound ball or shot, same drill, drop down to the four pound ball or shot, same drill. So now you have a, a midline performance at the eight pound, the six pound and the four pound. Now, logic goes to tell you that the lighter implement, you should be able to throw it further, right? Well, the question now becomes when you look at the numbers and you don't see the improvements as you drop down to the two uh, progressively lighter weights, that athlete more often than not, and again, this is a slight simplification, but not everybody listening to your program has all the cool bells and whistles and multi-thousand dollar testing tools that that uh, some of the bigger schools and, and, and more uh, affluent programs have. So to get back to what I was saying, if the person is neurally wired, they should be able to accelerate the lighter implement all things being equal, if they're not accelerating the lighter implement and getting a further toss, 
that kind of points to where I want to start to address shortcomings with that individual. On the other hand, if the person progressively throws further and further with the lighter implements, I'm dealing with a pretty wired individual, I would say. And then I've got to look at, well, are there need for more resources? And then we're talking about, you know, hypertrophy or something of that nature. Is there a technique sort of uh, adjustment that needs to be made to get some improvement? And so you start to individualize your training from that point forward based on the individual needs is, is what I'm trying to say. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. I, uh, that's very much like, uh, and obviously, uh, this is coming out this, uh, the, the, just the, my jump too, uh, which is, I think more for more along the lines of probably for, uh, team sport athletes and the like, like basketball or volleyball, uh, but runs off a very, uh, similar principle. Like, uh, you, you jump with various weights on your back and it tells you if you're a deficit one way or the other. Uh, but yeah. I, what you're doing, like, as you were starting to describe, it, I was like, Oh, that's awesome. I should have been doing that a long time ago. You know, like when I was, uh, back at full time on the college level, I, I it's just, uh, it seems like there's, uh, there's such a, it's a more specific way to get someone's a track athlete, especially his velocity profile where, uh, velocity is King and you don't have a bar, you know, not that you have a bar on your back in basketball, but it's more velocity oriented jumping than basketball <laughs> for no doubt. Uh, I, that's a really smart system. I, that's really interesting to me. Well, I think I think I think you're being a little modest. I, you you've got to know that with the years you have in now, and the observations over those years, you can walk watch a kid walk you know the hundred meters straight away to where you're standing and start to assess them before they even get to you. But for somebody that doesn't have that sharp an eye or or that uh, big a database in their head where they've dealt with with individuals over a number of years, it's kind of a quick and dirty answer to to the primary issues that you're looking at with the individual kids yeah and i think just finding out how wired a kid is too i like that that term uh, is very uh, i think very valuable and i think uh, i don't know who it was maybe it was poliquin who said if you want to find like the nervous system potential of a young athlete have them do a backwards overhead with like a 10 pound or something i think that was yeah. poliquin yeah and I, I like ohbs um because the the comparative value you know, as far as uh, over the years and different athletes and different events. And that kind of goes back to the uh, LSU testing decathlon where in the fall they do their timed 30s and their multi-jumps and, and their throws and their standing long jumps and things like that. And you start to, to develop uh, you know, a, a database where if you're at XYZ high school or, you know, an NAI school or D3 school where you don't get, you know, freak athletes necessarily – um, it becomes finer and finer tuning that gets the bigger and bigger results. And so the more information you have, you know, the better it is as you work with successive years and successive, you know, four-year generations of kids that come through your program. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It's I think even with, like, there are certainly things that a lot of coaches kind of, you know, they have the coach's eye. They can say, okay, this athlete's wired. I can just tell, watch them run and jump a little bit. Yeah, you're, but I think especially for, uh, even for just uh, early, like early level coaches who haven't developed that sense too, just uh, the, the throws and, and that, I think there's a lot of value there. And, and as well too, like I, you see those jumpers decathlons, like the, 
there's uh, there's a, a several of them. I think there's like the Russian ones, and <laughs> and uh, you have all these different types of bounds, or uh, and then there's maybe some shot put throwing. But that'd be kind of a cool addition for for track jumpers too, is uh, backwards overheads of different weights in addition to the standing triples or standing fives or and those types mm-hmm. of movements. I think that would be uh, really useful and, and interesting for a, a full spectrum of of uh, assessment. Well, you can benchmark performances. I mean, you know, for instance. I can't, this is, you know, my personal opinion. I don't have hard numbers to put in front of you, but I got to think that a woman that wants to jump two meters in the high jump has got to throw an OHB at least 15 meters. You know, there's just a certain, there's a certain prerequisite to the event that, you know, if you don't, if you haven't got the ability to accelerate, you know, an eight pound ball that way, you're probably not going to be able to do it on the surface, you know, the apron. The other thing I like is because you and I are both high jump guys from way back. Think about an OHB. And think of up from the low point in the squat and goes out the top over the back and kind of roughly imagine that ball as it passes up the long axis of the body after the center of mass and then think about that arch of the back at the very top of the release and i find a lot of commonality with ohbs and high jump yeah oh no doubt i i think we had actually had that conversation a few years ago like kind of what are the uh, like I, I think it was something along the lines of uh, overhead back almost being like a standing vertical test for high jumpers because <laughs> it tested qualities that were a little more specific to the to the nature of the takeoff and, and just the, the coordination and the explosive wiring. Well, um, I want to I want to help you to get back on track. We kind of got a little bit off on a tangent, but um, you know, it, as far as plyometrics and and dealing with the individuals, once we assess you know, their strengths and weaknesses, their, their needs. Another quick one before I get too far into that, uh, a a mistake I see high school coaches make is a lot of high school coaches have spring only athletes that come to them off the basketball court. And what are those kids been doing all winter playing basketball? Basketball is about as plyometric an activity as it gets. So do you bring those kids in in the spring for a 10 or 12 week, you know, season and take them completely out of, their wiring patterns, their motor programs, and make them go out and run, you know, 30 minute long, slow jogs for two or three weeks to quote unquote, get them into shape for track. You know, you have to kind of create an AP program where you give them advanced placement or advanced credit because they're already trained from that specific activity. And it relates very well to the short sprints, the hurdles, the long triple high, that sort of thing. Um, but again, to, I, I keep wandering off topic. I want to get back to your original question. Um, as far as jumps, you know, as far as plyometrics and dosage and that sort of thing, once you've assessed the individuals, um, because one size really doesn't fit all, if you're trying to performance, you have to have an individual program. So as far as, you know, drop heights and those sorts of things, um, one of the keys I like is when you watch the individual drop, Just as I said, you have to learn the OHB before you can measure it. You have to watch the athlete drop and land and see how they amortize at the landing. See if there's any kind of valgus varus issues at the knees. You know, that classic picture of Robert Griffin um, going through the combine, and he's about as knock-kneed as it gets at the bottom of the landing. You know, you can't take that individual and then overload that motor program or that, you know, that response to a landing because you're going to blow them up. So at that point now, it becomes a question of volume. It becomes a question of intensity. So intensity is controlled in a drop by the height of the drop. 
volume obviously is is a is a numbers game as far as frequency and total and how quickly you come back to it later in the week or how frequently over the course of a three-week cycle or so on and so forth and then again you know individualizing it you know you, you got to let freshmen be freshmen but you know seniors have been in your program for, for three years and and hopefully you've got them to a point where you can advance them and give them more intense situations that they respond to and, and hopefully that creates the positive result you're looking for in the competitive arena you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster yeah no doubt and and yeah thanks for steering me back on track a little bit uh i actually wanted to take something you said because it'll lead right into the next question you had mentioned uh like an athlete who maybe does extremely well on that the the light overhead back throw and they're they're wired and they can they can meet that light weight and, and meet it with speed and you were talking about a little bit more hypertrophy training so for uh jumping athletes who are looking to get stronger or get more force uh, what are some guidelines for hypertrophy and how might you go about building that hypertrophy for a jump specific athlete? Well, hypertrophy, you know, often, most often people think about muscle mass. And the first thing I'll tell you is for jumpers, the David Oliver look, the hurdler, or, you know, the, the scary middle linebacker look isn't necessarily going to be a positive in the case of the jumps because anything north of, of the belt line is a lot of weight that doesn't necessarily contribute to vertical. So we've got to look at, for instance, um, I've worked with some female athletes in the case of jumpers, and I've advised them or their coaches that I'm not a big believer in clean and jerk. I'm not a big believer in snatches. I'm a believer in a pull off the floor and accelerate the weight and get full extension you know, through the legs. And as that weight rises, I don't necessarily need the upper body strength of stabilizing that weight overhead. I'm not a big believer in that sort of activity because I think there's a safety issue at times, injury issue at times, but equally, I'm not looking for any kind of mass buildup on the upper body because we have to carry that along with us up into the air and, and gravity tends to want to grab a hold of that extra mass. So if we're talking about hypertrophy for jumpers, we're talking predominantly core strength going down through the legs. So now, if that's the case, and to go back to our, our force vector analysis, uh, I did some research back in uh, 2001 and published in 2002 a paper that asserted the dominance of eccentric contractions in the case of, of high-performance jumping. And so if you're looking at basically at quad strength, you have the soldiers and the quads to resist flexion at the knee when you put that foot down in a plant at a certain horizontal velocity. If you don't have strength at the knee and you're gonna get a buckling effect or you're not gonna be able to get off the ground as quickly as possible, then you've gotta look at strengthening the quads to, to be able to manage that level of velocity and then redirect yourself to vertical or, or horizontal distance from the jump. Yeah, uh, so within uh, within uh, building up those muscles too, and I yeah. to I totally agree with you on the Olympic thing. I, I the more I kind of used Olympic lifts over the years, and I would 
especially as prevalent as they've been, I think the last uh, 10, 20 years in the training of track and field athletes. And I mean, there's no doubt they can improve power and coordination, but I guess for maybe a high jumper specifically, who's got a really, who's got a, every pound's got to fight gravity. And, and obviously for other horizontal jumpers too, or, or team sports to a degree, but like uh, you, you start to see athletes who are just really built up in like their traps and their, you know, low or their upper back and the back, the, the shoulders. And you could just tell that they've been doing a lot of Olympic lifting, which is like, you know, cool. Good for you. You look, you look good. You got that, that, uh, upper back, but I'm like, you know, that's probably a couple extra pounds. You got to take over the bar. <laughs> uh, exactly. And so, you know, you've got to, you've got to stop and think, you know, what's job one here and what are we trying to do and what's either contributing or detracting from achieving that goal. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's, I don't think it's, it's totally wrong to do them. You know, I mean, you see people, and maybe some jumpers just have less capacity to get big up there. Like Stefan Holm, you see him doing his cleans and stuff. And I, but I don't think that guy, that guy's not like, he's not the guy who's going to look at a weight and blow up either. <laughs> you know, he's, Again, you know, how often do you get a Stefan Holm in your program? How often do you get a, you know, do you get a Mike Powell in your program or get a, you know, Brigitte Barrett in your program or so on and so forth? So, for you know, 99% of the people that you know, hopefully it's more than 99 people that listen to this podcast, they're dealing with athletes that are not typically the freak, you know, genetic outlier. They're dealing with more of the salt of the earth type, and they're trying to get improvement out of them. So, you know, you have to be a little more practical and and not necessarily look at you know the the, the cookie cutter sort of posted training of. I mean, Dan Pack tells a story about watching Christo Markov was a triple jumper, a Bulgarian or Eastern European triple jumper, single leg half squatting with 350 pounds, you know, on his back. That's insanity. And obviously yeah. you're not trained to that end, and you can't expect to get the, the same reaction or responses that the athlete did doing that. So it still goes back to what I said earlier is you need to know your individuals as well as you possibly can. What kind of kid have you got? What's the coordination? What's the strength level? What's the nervous system dialed in at? And then you make those decisions as much as you can individually for the individuals. And I keep saying that, but I want to apologize to, to coaches who are, say, on the high school level, and it's one coach and 30 or 40 kids. It gets kind of tough to individualize 30 or 40 programs when you're just one guy working, you know, two or three hours after school. Um, but, again, in human performance, if you don't individualize the work, you don't get as optimal a return on the work. Yeah, I uh, I agree. Uh, and with uh, so with the the hypertrophy stuff uh, for like a, a single leg jumper in particular, obviously like a track and field level. Uh, I mean, taking away like a high volume of Olympic lifting, would you be looking at more utilizing getting your effect through uh, through step ups, half squats, or are you looking for things that have more of an eccentric component, like the squats as opposed to step ups, to try to um, to try to get a little more muscle there? Is there a particular, uh, and obviously I guess different athletes in the weight room even to respond a little bit differently, but is there any like kind of go-to way you like to seek out a little force development, hypertrophy development for the leg muscles in those guys and gals? Well, um, again, uh, similar to how we were talking about Olympic lifts a, a moment ago, I'm not a big fan of loading the back. Um, you know, the back is, is a trigger point for a lot of problems at times. 
So putting a, a heavily loaded bar across the shoulders and, and doing deep squatting, that sort of thing, you better have a kid that's pretty strong and pretty stable and doesn't have any previous injury history. Um, I'm more a fan of deads. Uh, I'm a fan of I, I, a lot of these things I've said in, in various lectures over the years, so I, I apologize if anybody's listening and this is redundant, but I'll give you another quick uh, example. I'm a big fan of, of running up hills and I'm not a big fan of stadium stairs or steps. And the reasoning being, if you think about the incline of a hill and the nature of the angle of the foot at the ankle, each step up that hill and the difference between plantar flexion and dorsiflexion, now take that same athlete, have them run up stadium steps or stairs, and what's the angle at the ankle when that foot contacts each step or stair? So you know, at, you're getting the training benefit, but we're also talking about how you apply that force to the ground on the runway, on the apron, on the basketball court, on the football field. And so, you know, we're looking for dorsiflexion at the ankle, and you're going to close that angle at the ankle if you go up an incline, but you're going to open up that angle at, at the ankle when you go upstairs. So that's an example of where I'm looking for strength training, but I'm also looking at biomechanics over and above the strength gains that we're going to get. Yeah, especially once you get to the more advanced athletes and that stuff starts really like impacting, especially athletes who have, I feel like, taken on like a particular means of gaining special strength with not that, that the motor pattern isn't helpful for years and years and years and uh, creates ceilings on people and uh, doesn't help uh, kind of create that. Op- it's like maybe it's a shortcut in the meantime, but it doesn't help them down the road. Yeah. Well, again, it, it, the same thing we talked about, you know, the freak athlete versus the, the mean having, you know, an, an average or above average individual, you kind of have to give the same consideration to training age. Um, so the same way that you evaluate a new athlete, you also have to reevaluate athletes that have been in your program for two or three or four years, or in the case of a collegiate coach working with athletes post-collegiately, you know, down the road further and further, because you only have so many bullets you can fire over the course of a career and you don't want to shoot too much in a, in a practice situation that isn't necessarily giving you the return. Yeah, I agree. I, I like what you said about not overloading the spine too. Uh, that's something I think I learned uh, with the hard knocks a little bit over, over the years, but like, uh, and maybe it just really stuck out to me once I saw um, a picture of Milo magazine with a Chinese weightlifter doing a setting up for a snatch and you look at the guy's back and it was just just mm-hmm. laden with just muscle like you know obviously very much needed for snatching 400 pounds uh, but i'm like well uh and even i mean obviously track athletes aren't doing near that weight but you see even like uh like some of the people doing like the really heavy step ups off an eight inch or six inch block and I, I look at that and i think well are you training your jump pathway or are you training your spine to handle 600 pounds uh, exactly you know, and then it, you know Unique to the sport, for instance, we're talking about drop heights a moment ago. You think about a volleyball athlete, how many times they land on the ground coming down from height at the, after jumping at the net. And you've got those constant poundings, 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 and coming up the connect chain from the ankle to the knee. The next stop is the hip and the low back. You know, you just can't beat on the hip and low back every single day and expect that kid to stay together. Or, you know, the freak athletes you see on a football field in the weight room, and then they have to go out and deliver hits and take hits that the spinal column has to deal with. So you've got to be pretty judicious on, on that kind of work and heavy work 
and like I said, loading the spine. Uh, again, because I specialize or I come from a, a track and field background, obviously I have a slightly different perspective, but you know, you have to look at all athletes holistically regardless of the sport. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I agreed. Uh, yeah, the the individual uh, fa- factors and variations. Every every coach has been around athletes for a while, I know, and especially for me, through I've, as I've done this podcast, we'll say the same thing. And it's so important, uh, Dave. I want to get into a little bit about uh, uh, two, th- well, a couple things. I had I'd seen you. Uh, and maybe we can uh, get some, bring some high jump anecdotes or some track jump anecdotes up in here. But uh, jumping, and, and I got this from you were talking about Derek Druin's um, uh, technical, uh, his his technique, and and how he's... a young a young man who has a lot of back problems right now. Oh really? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh yeah, I was to say he and he runs like I mean he is like a an epitome of like a ball of the foot type type runner. I think you even mentioned even plants on the ball of the foot <laughs> and uh and so uh maybe it, with that in context though uh or well maybe let's start with that and then we can get more in the the questions as we go along but uh so these athletes like this so uh, or even like i don't think stefan Holm plants on the toe but you watch that guy run or just like do his little like shuffle into his run and he's very like very high up on the toes uh and but then he doesn't plant on it. But it's Derek Drew and is very happy in the toe. His plants on the toe. And there's some of these athletes who do this and really get up. Um, and and but like, and like you just alluded to, it could lead to injury. So is that something, or are parts of that something we would ever want to emulate? Uh, or or what's your take on kind of how the single leg plant and a single leg jump should really set itself up? Well, I. Don't let me not answer the question, but I'm going to take it back just a step and we'll hopefully walk toward what we're just discussing. Um, in any you know case of a jump, it really comes down to velocity and the path of center of mass. Now, the distinction being the horizontal jumps, long and triple jumps are, are you know, X, Y axis sort of jumps. Um, a lot of your listeners probably don't really think about or don't um, – don't necessarily pay attention a lot to high jump, but there's a third dimension in the high jump because when they run the curved part of the approach, there's an inward lean. So the center of mass doesn't line up directly over the foot contacts when you're running the curve. And then you have to bring that center of mass back over the foot to get a jump and then following rotations to get the bar and clearance. So the question becomes, the nature of the jump, whether it's a basketball player, football player, you know, soccer goalie, or high jumper in this case, um, you know, if you're in a static position, that's one thing, but we're talking about a running jump in the case of high jump. So the first question becomes for me and, and dealing with a lot of coaches, are, are you looking two-dimensionally or three-dimensionally at the athlete? So what I mean by saying that is, if you take a few minutes and you go on your computer and you Google mental rotations test, what you'll find if you look at the images or if you click on one of the links is you'll find a, a kind of a pen and ink line drawing of a bunch of cubes. And you basically have, say, an A and a B selection. And A and B are a bunch of linked cubes. But because you're looking on a flat screen or a flat piece of paper at the image, that's drawn three-dimensionally, in your mind, 
you have to be able to manipulate that in your head to decide how many cubes or if the two images are the same image of the same item but rotated slightly differently or not um so that requires a lot of uh spatial processing and and your ability to 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 think three-dimensionally um some people have that ability some people don't uh, i did some research back uh around 2004 to 2008 or so um talked a lot with dan pap about it and one of the things i found is that in the visual spatial realm while it sounds sexist it's uh demonstrable that women tend to be more challenged visually spatially than men um to the point where I remember reading an article in my research where engineering schools were having to remediate female students who didn't have the ability to manipulate objects mentally in their head. And that's a challenge, for instance, in engineering or architecture, those sorts of skills. It doesn't mean that men don't sometimes suffer from the same lack of ability, but it tended to be more predominant in the females. And then uh, some people really got far afield and tried to tie that into hormonal influences, uh, influences in the womb and that remember the 2d 4d about the length of the fingers and, and that sort of thing oh yeah i know, I know that what you're talking so about there we, we can get into the weeds on that but i, I don't really want to but what mm -hmm. i'm trying to get back to is as a coach in the case of the high jump we're talking about three dimensions because there are a lot of high jumpers and you know the event pretty well there are a lot of high jumpers that are basically masquerading as long jumpers because they don't add the third dimension at the end of their approach, they're running upright and in a straight line, and it allows them to bring a lot of speed and put a lot of force in the ground. And because they lower their center of mass prior to doing so, they can create a very high center of mass in flight. The problem is, and here's where people get confused with the NBA dunk champ. Everybody wants to think the NBA dunk champ would be the Olympic high jump champ any given year, but that's not the case because it's not about how high you project your center of mass. It's about how high can you project your center of mass and still leave the bar on the pegs and land on the other side. So it's that transverse plane activity. It's, it's angular momentum in the jump. It's rotating about the long axis of the body and then rotating about the long axis of the bar in high jump. But to back it away from 3D back to 2D, I'll give you another example. Let's make it two-dimensional. We'll talk about long jump. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, ever interviewed Randy Huntington, but if you get a chance, please ask him for the definitive answer to this question. But I think the reason Mike Powell beat Carl Lewis in Tokyo in 91 and set the world record is because Mike's penultimate step was decidedly off to the right or off the line of the previous approach. So to keep it simple for listeners, if you run through a puddle at speed and then you make wet footmarks following running through that puddle, you typically have feet that line up heel to toe, heel to toe as you run. So imagine Mike Powell coming down the runway, heel toe, heel toe, heel toe, heel toe. He was a left footed jumper. So his next to last step was his right foot. His right foot didn't line up with its heel off the toe of the previous left. It actually stepped slightly to the right. Well, what that did is that caused him to lower his center of mass to a greater degree, but in also as well as lowering the center of mass to a greater degree, it also caused less deceleration. 
So this gets back to all jumps. In order to jump, you have to sacrifice horizontal velocity to redirect the path of the center of mass. So if you think about a typical run where you're just running in a straight line or you're a 100-yard dash athlete, your center of mass rises and lowers and rises and lowers to a degree as you run you know, in a straight line. Well, somewhere you have to break that pattern if you're going to stop running in a straight line and jump up. So there has to be a, a lowering of center of mass prior to that plant foot or that jump leg coming into play. So my you know, imperfect estimation going back to the Powell Lewis question was Carl was clearly, clearly a faster guy than Mike. Mike was like a 10-3, 10-4, 100-meter guy, if I recall. Carl obviously was down in the 9-8s. So on face value, you know, my mother, who was in her late 70s, would think the faster guy should jump farther, but yet Powell beat him. Well, how did you do it? Well, he lowered his center of mass to a greater degree by taking that penultimate offline. By taking that penultimate offline, his hips continued to displace forward, and there was less of a braking effect because that foot wasn't directly underneath him. And by creating a lower center of mass, the vector he created gave him a higher takeoff angle. So he closed the gap horizontal speed-wise with Carl, and he had a higher takeoff angle. The only thing that's left, as we talked about earlier, is did he have the strength of that leg to handle a high rate of speed and an incredibly low center of mass? And he did, and he banged a big jump, and he still holds the world record. Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, I like that anecdote. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that. I was actually watching those two jumping probably in the last week at some point. Uh, more so, I've just, I was on a big kick of looking at the swing leg mechanics of the leg swinging through. But I was watching, and I was thinking, I was like, wow, like Powell, he really like, he, his, the dynamic, he is so much more dynamic in the way he lowers himself on the penultimate. But I didn't, I wasn't thinking or wasn't really watching for the what you said, the way he puts his foot out to the side, which makes sense how he was able to uh, conserve his speed there and the triplanar motion of the the athlete is is something that has been a huge paradigm uh, shift for me in the last several years and and really taking that on in many ways so uh, I'm glad you brought that up well let me let me just close the loop really quickly because again you know you and I both like to talk about high jump if you think about high jumpers more often than not you're going to see that same sort of thing happen where they're running a curve and then all of a sudden that penultimate deviates further off the, the curved line. The problem with high jumpers is when they execute that activity, they tend to come out of lean and shift their center of mass over the top of that foot. When they do that, they've given up all centripetal force, and then they come onto that plant foot and that plant leg, and they don't have angular momentum to rotate the bar because they uprighted themselves in the execution of the penultimate. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, they. Uh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, taking it, uh, taking it back to the foot, though, too, as mm-hmm. well. Uh, and just so, uh, is there a way that 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 uh, that multiplanar movement is linking into these guys who uh, are plant like uh, maybe even a Stefan Holm versus Derek Drew, two very toey guys, uh, just general bouncing around. And the way they're kind of wired through the ankle, but then they plant a little differently, um, and uh, just the mechanics of being able to do that with the, with the foot. Like, uh, can you just go into a little bit of detail sure. in in that plant sure. in the foot? I was I was lecturing at uh, 
what was back then Nike High School Indoor Nationals. It was down in uh, suburban TC area, uh, Landover, Maryland, somewhere around there. Um, and it was the night before the meet, and I was lecturing on the high jump. And so I had, I don't know, 40 or 50 athletes and coaches. Um, and I brought a plastic tent stake with me. And we walked over to the long jump pit. And I joked, I said, we're going on a field trip. What a great class, huh? And they're all scratching their head. Why are we going to the, to the, to the long jump pit? And so I put the, the tent stake in the sand. And I said, you're out camping one night. And you forget to bring a, an axe or a hatchet or a mallet or a hammer. And you've got to drive the tent stakes. Otherwise, you can't pitch the tent, right? So when you're going to drive that tent stake, are you going to tap it in with your big toe or are you going to drive it into the ground with your heel? And, you know, if you think about it, number one, we need to deliver force to the ground because the greater force we deliver to the ground, the greater potential force we stand to gain on the backside of the vector, number one. Number two, if you think about plantar flexion versus dorsiflexion, like when we were talking about the hill runs versus the stadium runs, same idea. So now the question becomes, where do you want an elastic response to occur? All right. Now, this is an oversimplification for the people that, that already know this, and I apologize, but there are still people out there that think that muscles are rubber bands. They think muscles stretch and then snap back, and that's what gives you the big dynamic jump. Well, if you think about muscle contraction, that's really not how it works. Muscles contract and then they relax. So if that's not where the elasticity is, where is the elasticity? Well, the elastic response really is in the Achilles tendon. So it's, it's, it's no uh, oversimplification to say when you watch the NBA team strip off their warm-ups and they're down into the shorts, or if you go to a track meet and the guys and, and the women are walking around without sweat bottoms on, you know, the majority, if not all those athletes have very high calves and very long Achilles tendons. And that's the spring effect that we're looking for. So now how are we going to get that spring response? Well, we have to put the energy into the ground. And then as the center of mass travels over the top of the foot, the stretching and return of that Achilles tendon is where we get that elastic response or where we let go of the horizontal and go to the vertical. So then it comes into a question of training for tendon strength and health and so on and so forth. It also becomes a question of what's the desired takeoff angle or parabola that we're looking for. So in the track and field world, the path of center of mass as it leaves the ground in long jumper or pole vault typically leaves at about a 20 degree angle to the surface. Uh, triple jump is a, is a little different because, uh, I don't want to get too far into the weeds as far as track and field, but to use your high jump, for an example, high jump has the greatest vertical requirement of all the track and field jumps. That's also why the center of mass has to lower to a greater degree than any of the other three. And then if you extrapolate what I just said and, and try to relate it to sport outside of track and field, you know, are we jumping for distance or are we jumping for height? Are we jumping to reorient our direction? What is the purpose of the jump? And then that starts to get into training specificity and, and maintaining health and, and a whole host of other questions. Oh, yeah. yeah I, like, uh, I like what you said about the uh, 
yeah the the tent spike in the force and i uh, i've been watching uh and just watching like dunk dunk videos that's what i do when i'm bored sometimes is <laughs> watch because uh, it's it's crazy too like the amount the the dunks that were awesome 15 years ago was is just like nobody would watch it now uh there's some guys who just get up so well and uh but like in a two leg two leg jump the the penultimate in a two leg jump or that second the the first foot to hit the ground always hits r way on the heel like it's a it's a true rolling contact because that's where all the force goes but then the 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 last step uh doesn't have to deal with the the full weight of the body so athletes often internally rotate that leg and plant on the toe or go right to the big toe and sometimes that heel doesn't hit it's kind of common but i could totally see that uh, with your your um, analogy in mind, just because by the time the body has to take the force with the force leg there and the two leg jump, and then the other legs kind of more of a, a, a speed lover and and just creates power through stretching the glute. And uh, I like uh, I like that tent spike uh, example. Uh, how do athletes? How do some of those athletes get away with it? Like how do you even get away? How does Drew get away with planting on the toe? Or or athletes? Some similar athletes like him? Like we've seen a couple of. Well, it, it, I mean. It, it's really, I, I don't like to speak about individuals in a, in a negative context, but in general, you can jump very high inefficiently. And, you know, we talked earlier before we started the broadcast about, about some of the high jump, you know, historical efforts and that sort of thing. You can jump very high. And then in the case of high jump, you can, there are things you can do to manipulate rotations to, to get a clearance. But if we take, people out of it, take Druin out of it, take Barsham out of it, take, you know, Bondarenko or our guy, Eric Canard, take, take individual names out of it. You're still talking about physics and the laws of physics, you know, Newton hasn't lost in gravity yet. So there's a more efficient and a less efficient way to jump. So if we're going to talk about high jump and, and, and how to put the foot down and, and that sort of thing, we're still going back to horizontal velocity in the path of the center of mass. So now we've talked about lowering the center of mass. It's a prerequisite to jump that you have to lower the center of mass first to a greater degree than the previous steps. The other thing that's taking place that's unique to high jump is both a, a, a linear effort, long triple, or a basketball layup, or the case, is if high jump is executed correctly, the center of mass isn't directly over the contacts. The first time that the center of mass comes over the contact in the last four or five steps, is as the body rises to vertical on that plant foot over that takeoff leg. So now in a perfect world, we'd like to see the center of mass travel outside of the left heel off the, the big toe and ground release. There's a reason why, you know, human evolution created a big toe. Well, we want to come off the big toe with the center of mass. What happens a lot in high jump, and I know you've, you've seen it. I don't know if you've thought of it, but we have a lot of guys that evert their foot. So they come running in and whatever they do, you know, in the last two or three steps, when they go to that plant foot, they actually rotate it out away from the bar, away from the pit. So the center of mass never travels over the top of the big toe. No, oh, that's interesting. Again, that's not optimal. You can get away with that, but again, it goes back to we're talking about Druin and, and those guys. Uh, it's kind of track geekish or wonky, but if you know anything about track and field, I think I told you earlier, um, some 
degree of, of that misapplication of plant, I think can tie back or tra has history that traces back to a kid that learned the high jump in non high jump shoes. Yeah. So if you're running around in basketball shoes or if you're running around in sprint spikes or triple jump spikes or, or shoes that don't have the solid last underfoot and don't have spikes in the heel, you can't put your heel down. If there's not spikes in the heel of your shoe, you're going to slide out and you're done right there. So the ability to plant or the likelihood of planting heel first, which I consider to be optimal is not going to happen if you're not wearing a high jump shoe to do it. So I kind of cringe a little bit because a lot of coaches go around this country and in various places and they, they do the 50 minute can lecture on high jump and they don't acknowledge the fact that there is no technical model documented for how to high jump in sprint shoes or basketball shoes because that's not how the mechanics work. So there's a little bit of misinformation or misunderstanding in that regard. And you also run into situations where, you know, especially on the high school level, you know, families don't have a lot of money in some cases and can't afford to drop $140 on a, on a specialized high jump shoe. So you jump with what you wear and, and you make the best of it. But biomechanically and honoring Newtonian physics, ideally that foot is going to contact the ground heel first and outside edge of the heel, the path of the center of mass will travel from inside of that foot away from the pit over the foot diagonally and off the big toe at ground release. That would be the optimal. What we see is frankly less than optimal, but you know, you've got a lot of people that are very successful doing it less than mechanically efficiently. And so Druin in the case, you know, we talked about him a second ago, Derek has back trouble. Well, where would you trace that back trouble to? You know, there's a lot of possible contributions. Could have been in the weight room, could have been a twisting angle, could have been a chiropractor for all I know. Um, but if you think of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands eventually of repetitions of putting that foot down at a high rate of speed and the jarring nature of that repetition, anything that's mechanically inefficient starts to create a repetitive use syndrome where eventually that energy comes up the kinetic chain looks for the weak link and blows it up huh yeah uh that's uh it's all really interesting i like i like a lot what you were talking about the plant that kind of the the plant foot that goes away from the standard or i guess just in if you're thinking about from a basketball perspective it would be like like going up to dunk and then externally rotating your foot like away from the hoop and trying to jump you would you'd miss your big toe you'd go off you'd roll off like your first metatarsal or somewhere in there you wouldn't even roll off your big toe here's, and you probably go very here's well. a challenge for you find a find a picture of a guy uh like from the dunk contests when they jump from the free throw line or pull up my old pal jim dillian he used to dunk from the free throw line um get a good video shot from a 90 degree angle from the side of a guy that runs the free uh, the free throw line, then jumps and, and, and drives in and puts the ball home. Tell me the first part of his foot to contact the ground. Yeah, I'm, I would almost be positive it's, it's the heel uh, in that uh, in that scenario. Right. So so we're talking about high horizontal demand and a high vertical demand. If you're jumping from 15 feet out trying to dunk on a 10 foot rim, those guys are contacting heel first because they got it. So that tells me, if nothing else, it's a huge oversimplification, but that tells me the most efficient way to jump 
in that scenario is heel first. Now, can you put your toe down? Of course you can. Can you stay healthy doing it? I don't know. Can you reach your maximum potential in jumping? I don't think so. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting. I feel like I've almost been biased throughout the years just from plyometrics. I remember having a, a quite a, my first day on the job in the biomechanics lab as a graduate assistant. I remember having a very extensive discussion uh, with one of the the track coaches who was the jump coach at that point. And I, in my young kind of career, had only came up in kind of the Soviet. Uh, well, I think my depth jump background had come from the Soviet idea, and it was basically just ball the foot, the heel comes down, you you're jumping from too high a box, and more like more of a a jump that just is focusing on loading the Achilles, I think, in a manner that you would see in jumping off two feet. And the mm-hmm. track coach was like, "Oh, you need to land flat footed," and we were just kind of going off uh, on different tangents that probably didn't actually really relate to the bio, the the biomechanical diversity of you know we were both coming from different points a little bit, but. Uh, but yeah, like the 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 longer I've kind of been thinking through, and as I've picked up knowledge over the years, like the, just the load to explode mentality for sprinting and jumping, and and there's a there's a specific one for all of it. And if you just if you just plan on the toe for anything, you don't really have time to produce a whole lot of force either. It kind of shortens your window of time to well, really generate force. Some of this is some of this is is terminology or semantics. Okay, um, you know, in, in a drop jump or hurdle hop or whatever the case may be the orientation of the foot when it contacts the ground and where the heel is in time and space aren't necessarily what you think they are um uh, i can't remember who who i first heard it from but i i go back again you know 20 years or so and i want to say probably Vern gambetta might have been the, the voice in my mind and they made the distinction between a flat foot contact and a full foot contact so if you put your foot down, um, you know, when I lecture, or I speak to it, I tell people to use the palm of their hand on the table or desk. You can put your hand down such that the length of your fingers and, you know, the, the ball of your ball of your hand rather than the ball of your foot are flat on the surface. And the heel of your hand is maybe an inch off the surface. Now, to the naked eye standing off to the side, that looks like a flat footed contact, yet the heel isn't down. So that gets back to where if you uh, stand off the side and you listen to ground contacts, that slapping sound that you hear reflects a full foot contact where the slightly gentler sound typically is what I would call a full foot contact where it looks like there's a 90 degree angle at the ankle, but the weight is slightly forward on the foot before the heel engages the ground. So that's number one. The other one, we'll use Dan Paff again, Dan years ago told me that he liked to run all his drills flat footed. And he liked to do that because it was a kind of a overcue or overcompensation for the fact that everything these kids come to you with is ball of the foot, stay on the ball of your foot, be up on your toes, toey running, you know, gymnastics type, you know, sprinters where everything is, is up front on the foot. And so we want to kind of detrain that or, or reprogram the motor program. So if you're looking as a coach to address something like that, somebody that's too toey, if you look at something that's low amplitude, low impact, that you can, and also as a slow, slow activity in, in a confined space where you can keep an eye on the drill, you can t- continually cue that athlete in full foot contacts, whether it's hurdle walkovers or, you know, 
up and up and back skips or various you know sorts of, of drills and such that we start to try to detrain and get them away from that high heel heel off the ground sort of running or planting yeah it's interesting it almost even uh coincides a little bit with a, a prior episode i had with lee taft just even talking about team sport athletes and change of direction where he had mentioned uh for and, and i i think it's always interesting to me to watch athletes accelerating where they uh, are kind of right to the big toe they have to be stiff and and um the heels off the ground but then a team sport who's got to change direction they always have to plant flat because they have to have that sensory information on where to go and and lee had mentioned planting flat with a forefoot emphasis and i've always well, kind of kept that with me i, I like that as a uh, for a lot of purposes it's that i mean we talked about you can deliver the greater force with dorsiflexion or through the heel first but if there's a change of direction issue and again high jump is classic because we just talked about the fact that the high jump shoe has spikes in the heel. Well, we know in a perfect world, four or five steps are going to be turning steps or curved steps at the end of the approach. Once that heel engages, that foot's not going to turn anymore. So if you're in a situation where the foot turns, but the hip and shoulder axes don't turn, and then once those heel spikes engage, you try to turn the upper body, you're going to start creating some torque. Well, you start torquing on that knee, Sooner or later, we're going to have problems with that knee, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, just different, uh, different uh, foot placements for different. For I mean, there's so many movements that require diff- different loading patterns and exploding patterns from the feet, uh, and I, I makes uh, it makes coaching uh, certainly more interesting rather than the, yeah, like Dan, the athletes that I came to Dan from just coaches overcuing them and telling them to be on their toes, like it's. Uh, the complexity of the movement is, is certainly fascinating to me. Well, I mean, again, it goes back to assessing the athletes and, um, you know, coaching one-on-one in track and field. Uh, and I keep name dropping, but these are all people that are kind of on my Mount Rushmore of uh, education. Uh, Bush Exnader would always talk about the drill doesn't teach, you teach. So, a lot of cases, whether I don't know if it's strength and conditioning situation, but in a, a team sport sort of application, you go through a warm up, and, and in the warm up, your athletes are going through different ranges of motion and, and doing different things. If the coach isn't engaged in watching and cueing and correcting, they're getting an awful lot of reps in very inefficient positions and, and mechanics, and they're also repetitively doing these things wrong, so they get really good at doing them wrong. So the warm-up period of a team sport or an individual athlete isn't the time for the coach to, to start texting with their girlfriend or go out for a cup of coffee. You kind of got to be engaged there in the moment because of the things that you are, are at risk by allowing those people. I mean, again, I, I go back to the story where I said that, you know, it's hard if you're a high school coach, you've got, you know, 30, 40, 50 teenagers and you're just one person. But at the same time, you can't let upperclassmen coach drills because they're not the coach and they're not skilled. They don't know what to look for. So, you know, drill time or warm up time is an integral part of that athlete development. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, uh, yeah, you gotta, you gotta build a base of doing things correctly. <laughs> Otherwise things will just go downhill uh, or, or maintain their poor status throughout the course of the year. 
Uh, I Dave, I got one time for one more question for you, and we had mentioned it uh, right at the beginning, and uh, figure since it's at the end, all the people who are uh, uh, high jump, high jump nuts or high jump coaches, or even people who just want to appreciate jumping differences, because I think it does. Uh, a lot of people listening to this podcast appreciate jumping, and I think that the difference between a flop high jumper and a straddle high jumper, which uh, and, and it is sad the straddle's dying out. Like even people will highlight, you know, if Barshim jumped eight feet and people put the picture of him up next to the net and, you know, or the rim and how cool is that? And there's those occasional blips of high jumping in, in uh, modern sport, uh, what everybody sees, but nobody really sees the straddle anymore. <laughs> uh, could you kind of talk into the two styles and what kind of physical qualities or, or, or movement predispositions might have one athlete uh, more geared for one to type of jump than the other? Well, again, regardless of what, what style an athlete uses to jump, and again, it's not high jump specific, but it, at the risk of being repetitive, I'm going to go back to the horizontal velocity and the path of the center of mass dictate the relative success or failure of a jump, be it height or distance or whatever it is that you're trying to achieve when you jump. So in the case of straddle, for you people that don't don't understand what he's, what we're talking about, until... Dick Fosbury came along in the mid sixties in the high jump out at Oregon state. Uh, the predominant form of jumping in the high jump was called straddle. In the case of the straddle, as opposed to the J or curved approach that the flop now uses, the individual athlete would come running at the bar on pretty much a straight line path at an angle, you know, I'll say 45, that's not the case, but it's easier for the audience. And they would, they would come at that bar from, from an angle and they would put the heel down and they would kick or drive that lead leg to create height and rotation versus with the flop, they run from a curved approach and we described how that foot contacts the ground and the right side, in the case of the drive leg, it's a bent knee which is more now just to say a high jump layup action of the opposite leg. And so when uh, Joel and I were talking before the start of the broadcast, uh, the, back in the, the, the heyday of the flop, uh, excuse me, the heyday of the, of the straddle prior to, to Fosbury coming along, you know, straddlers were jumping two meters, 20, two meters, 25. They were jumping, you know, seven, two, seven, three, seven, four, seven, five, whatever the case may be. I think, uh, the last great straddler would get up around 231 or 232, if I remember correctly. Um, so if you look at our high jumpers today, 230 qualified a couple of our athletes for the world championships in high jump. In fact, three of our guys jumped 230 and, and we'll be going to London for the worlds in a couple weeks. Um, well, if you can jump 230 with straddle and you can jump 230 with high jump, what's to say that one's better than the other? Well, hypothetically, if you get the rotations right in high jump, you're in a situation where you have to elevate your center of mass to a lower degree because the nature of how you straddle the bar, the long axis of your body rotates over the long axis of the bar, where in high jump, you actually rotate back to the bar and there's a draping action such that your center of mass is lower than the midpoint of your body and while I've never seen actual hard data, there's, there's rumors to the effect that uh, a Swedish jumper, Patrick Schoberg, actually had a jump evaluated 
where his center of mass actually passed under the bar. So his body had to go over the bar and not knock it off, but his center of mass went underneath the bar height. So the efficiency of that and, and, and the, the appeal of not having to have to elevate quite as high drove a lot of people to, to, to the flop style of high jump. But biomechanically and neurally and, and strength and development and all the other qualities that go into athleticism, there are people walking the street or there are people in track and field who probably are more disposed to straddle than high jump. The loss being that it's not being taught anymore. There are, there are no straddle masters out there that you can go to and, and, and get that education. But it, it can be more efficient for an individual. I do get calls once in a while, uh, somebody coaching a decathlete or a heptathlete, say on the high school level or, or the collegiate level, and, and they weren't high jumpers previously, and they're looking for a rush job where they've got to get somebody as high as they can to get the most points in their heptathlon or decathlon. Um, and, and you will find people that are trying to revive the event, but the expertise is, is, is so hard to find these days that uh, I don't think you're ever going to see it come back. But from a biomechanics standpoint, that long left leg, horizontal velocity and putting force in the ground and the resultant vector, there are people that actually would straddle better than flop. Yeah, what blows me away with the watching the straddle style is I feel like it's watching the, the straddle style people jump is the same reason that I would fail miserably anytime I try to do a between the legs dunk off one leg. Like they can, it's like they can keep that impulse of the swing leg going alongside their takeoff action. Like their, their swing leg gets so high and they're still pushing. And I just, I've always, maybe I was just never coordinated that dunk, but I, (laughs) I always feel like there's some similarity. Your, your, Your strength and conditioning guy with a high jump background, the, the gold standard or the golden rule is to apply the greatest amount of force over the greatest range of motion in the least amount of time. So the range of motion in the flop is three-dimensional because we're talking about low to high, we're talking about forward rotation, but we're also talking about that transverse plane, that inward lean rotating to vertical and past vertical to contribute angular momentum. So if you do it right, you can put a lot of force in the ground in the same context, the nature of the long axis of the body lean backward away from the straddle when you put that foot down and the rotation of that body forward over the top of that foot and then the dynamics of the free leg swing, you know, in both cases, you can put a lot of force into the ground and then the question is, what's the efficiency of the bar clearance? And some athletes straddle, could straddle well and some athletes do, do flop well. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it was the bar clearance that always messed me up. Actually, <laughs> I could never figure it out. It always frustrated. I could jump high, it just never always frustrated me to no end. And then, yeah, watch some athletes do it. It's just supernatural or easily well, easy like to them. You, you talked about the about being able to dunk and that sort of thing. The same way you talk about you know the track people have seen the picture of the guy's name is Mutaz Barsham, and he's probably the most efficient technical jumper in the world right now in the case of high jump, but. That same picture, a very similar version of that picture came out a couple of years ago when Zach Levine won the NBA dunk contest. Hmm. And what they did is they superimposed, I think if I remember correctly, uh, the high jumper. They were looking at how high he was in relation to the rim and saying, oh, well, 
well, you know, he's a, he he's jumping. I think the terminology I can't quote it exactly, but something like his center of mass, or or he got as high as a Olympic caliber high jumper. Well, again, but that's a two dimensional measure in that he created a lot of height. But in order to be an Olympian or Olympic champion, you have to be able to create a lot of height and clear the bar. Yeah, it's uh, there's there's certainly a lot more to it than jumping high, no doubt. I mean, I think we all. Uh, I've seen those guys, at least those of us in the track world have seen that guy uh, who's great at dunking come out to high jump. And sometimes they do great, but sometimes they have no uh, struggle immensely too. It's kind of a... But you, know, you, know, you don't see it really quickly. I know we're running out of time, but you don't see that a lot nowadays because the kids aren't as universally athletic as they used to be oh, yeah, you no, know, they aren't. 20, 20, 25, 30 years ago. And it's not because I'm an old guy and, and, and romanticizing about how good things were in the old days, but... Um, I, I cracked up because I, I do a lot of screen saves. My, I have to have a 128 gig phone because I'm constantly doing screen saves because something will pop up on my screen <laughs> that relates to what I'm working on or I'm about to lecture on or something like that. And they had uh, ESPN had a double frame of two of the recent top draftees. One was Lonzo Ball and the other was, I think it was uh, the the Kansas kid Josh Jackson or whatever. And they were throwing out opening pitches at, at a baseball stadium. And they basically threw the ball onto the ground. <laughs> and I'm like, where's the athleticism here? If you're an elite athlete in basketball and you can't get the ball 60 feet to a catcher's mitt. So we've we got a situation where, you know, this gets into early specialization and we could do a whole other podcast. But we've got kids that are, are so dialed in on the specifics of one sport and constantly doing that sort of thing when it's been proven time and time again that it's much more holistic and much more better from a developmental sense to have a wide range of, of sports and a and a and a, a, a very broad based you know uh, resume athletically and then dial it into the specific sport later. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I've heard the same thing from so many coaches and. I mean, it's uh, especially you. You uh, would love to see some of that that track basketball and track football combination a little bit more often out of a lot of people. So, uh, I totally hear you on that. Uh, but well, any oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to going to see. I think I don't know if we covered everything. I was just going to check in with you. Oh yeah, well I think uh, yeah, as far as the scope uh, of of time, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, so I think that's all the time we have for today, Dave. But uh. Uh, thank you for your time today and your expertise, and uh, and thanks for taking a lot of these high jump kind of ask questions and, and making the relation to uh, other forms of jumping, other sports, and, and it's just really great stuff, man. Thank you, uh, thank you so much. You're very welcome. I, I enjoyed it a lot. I hope it helps some people. All right, thanks for tuning in today. We appreciate you being here. Uh, if you like the show, please don't hesitate to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your listening platform of choice. Also, don't hesitate to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology with uh, great pieces and training tools like the free lap timing system, which you're going to hear a lot of guests on this show mention that they'll use, or, or even if you don't, a lot of them use it. And uh, it's just such a great and convenient way to get uh, accurate times on athletes. Uh, then you also got things like the K-Box. You got things like 
the 1080 sprint which is really revolutionizing sprint training on so many levels and a lot of other great pieces of equipment uh they're continually updating and adding some of the best things uh available as well the best tools available so uh keep uh seeing what they have to offer they're a great great company doing great things uh we'll be back next week with another great episode uh you guys are gonna love what we have in store for you the next couple of weeks so we'll see you guys then have a good one